Yes, we do tend to sometimes run a panel of blood tests for screening, but it's usually got to be associated with for another reason. That's why it's really important to understand that the test comes, it's got to be interpreted within the setting that it's it's tested for and ordered. When something says iron on a blood test, it's not actually measuring your available iron stores. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. The stuff that you talk about in your training session or it might be in your recovery session at the cafe. So what we do is we break it down, invite a guest expert in part A and then follow that up with a part B, which is the athlete providing the perspective. So today it's episode 48A, should I get regular bloods and what should I test for? And we're lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Alice McNamara. So we discuss what blood tests can tell an athlete and the support team, what tests are related to nutrition for runners, cyclists and triathletes, and should we get regular bloods for screening or only when there's a suspected issue. Before we get stuck into that, how are you going, Al? All right, thanks, Steph. I survived the big wet that was last week. My brother actually lives right near the Maribyrnong River, which flooded, Mm -hmm. but thankfully his house is sort of up the hill, so he was not affected. But I know a lot of people were, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. and obviously parts of country Victoria are doing it pretty tough at the moment. So, um, yeah, difficult time. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, no, other than that, I've just been working on this conference presentation for the, the Worldwide Nutrition Conference, which is happening I think my presentation is quarter to midnight on Saturday night, our time, because it's Saturday morning in New York, which is the time zone that the conference runs on, being a, uh, a global virtual conference, mm. unfortunately. <laughs> so having a big night on on that Saturday. Yep, yep, big night. <laughs> I might have to jump on Zwift, I think, to keep me awake before that. So I'm uh, Get full of adrenaline. energy and nice and yep. alert yeah, before I do yep. my presentation. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Marathon. You survived the uh, the rain. You, you're up on a hill, so you'd be fine from a flooding point of view. Yeah, yeah, all fine. Just enjoying riding through the puddles, actually, the small, <laughs> small puddles in the trails that are near us. So, yeah, just been getting out on the mountain bike a bit more and more, which has been fun, mixing it up with running and biking. Otherwise, just same, same hour, marking, marking, marking. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> It may be slowly getting the better of me, but I'm getting getting there. Uh, so, mm, surviving. The academic year is coming to a close. It's the last week of semester. It's certainly at Monash, so yeah. uh, the marking will stop at some stage soon. Yeah, I, I am looking forward to just a, a little bit of a break, you know. Yeah. And there's some assignments, as you know, that can be quite enjoyable to to mark, yes. and then there's others that are obviously a lot more tedious. But updates and announcements, Al? 
Yeah, so a couple of updates and announcements. We mentioned last week on the podcast that we had a bit of a planning get-together a couple of weeks ago, Steph, mm. uh, and made a few decisions about, I guess, the future of the Long Munch and, and where it's all headed. But before we do that, obviously today is episode 48A, which means that episode 50 is only a few short weeks away, Steph. Mm. And so similarly to our 50th episode, which I think was actually episode 25, but obviously with the A and B episodes, episode 50 isn't episode 50, if that makes sense. Uh, we had our special guest. So last year we had Professor Andy Jones talking to us about the Nike Breaking 2 project and the nutrition aspects of that project because a lot's been talked about the science and the shoes and the drafting and all that kind of stuff. But no one had really talked much about the sort of the nutrition planning and, and how that sort of panned out. So we had a really great chat with Andy about that. So that was, I guess, a bit of a special episode where it didn't answer a specific question as we usually do on the podcast, but more one just to to look at a really cool sort of nutrition project. So we've also got another special guest lined up for episode 50, which will be coming up in sort of mid-November-ish. So uh, we won't say just yet who that is. You'll have to wait a couple more weeks to find out. But uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, we're really looking forward to that one and um, having having a chat to our guest about that. The other thing that we want to mention today, Steph, is a bit of a change to our podcast format that we've got coming up, or well, starting today, really. One of the things we've decided to stop doing, actually, is our social media shout-outs as much as we enjoy them. Obviously, when we started out this podcast, it was very much a sort of a small community, mostly of runners, cyclists, and triathletes we knew ourselves or we'd worked with or their kind of peers and colleagues. And uh, it was a bit of a, a community and people, I think, really enjoyed that aspect of it. But over time, and particularly this year, the podcast grown quite a bit. And now people see it more as a, a you know, there's still obviously that community element, but people do see it as a, a resource to answer those specific questions that we ask on the podcast. And so we've decided to drop the social media part. And so making our intros shorter, essentially, so people can get to the question of the podcast a lot quicker without having to skip through that if they're not interested in in that aspect. So uh, one of the things we we sort of talked about in doing that is being a bit more active on social media and and engaging with people that way uh, rather than doing it here on the podcast. So yeah, unfortunately, no more social media shout outs. But if people are asking questions, obviously, we're still going to give them the kudos for those when we answer those questions on the podcast. And occasionally we get sort of little short questions that someone might send through on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram that that we do, you know, read out and answer those at the start of the podcast as well. So that will continue. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And just a reminder, obviously, you know, we always welcome people's feedback. You can contact us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If it's a particular question that you'd like answered on the podcast, we're happy to hear that. And we've got quite a few and and a lot of ours coming through at the moment are based on listener questions, but also just any other feedback as well would be grateful for as well. Today's episode, should I get regular bloods and what should I test for? Joined by Dr. Alice McNamara. Yeah, so Alice, you might recall, was previously on episode 18B, which was uh, the topic was what is hyponatremia and should I be worried? And so Alice is a medical doctor who is also a sports medicine registrar. So she works at the moment with the Victorian Institute of Sport. She's worked with Rowing Australia and her own background is as an elite rower. Uh, she also works with Endurance Medical Services who service a lot of the sort of endurance and ultra endurance sort of events out in the wilderness here 
in Victoria, which is why we spoke to her about hyponatremia in that previous episode. She does a bunch of other roles in football and other things as well. I don't know how she fits it all in. Mm. Uh, I think you actually asked her that at the start of this interview, Steph, from memory. <laughs> and she also travelled to Birmingham with the Australian swimming team for the Commonwealth Games earlier on this year. So busy lady doing various things in, in the field of sports medicine. And so we thought she'd be a great person to have a chat to about I guess, the use of blood tests for athletes, when to get those tests, you know, what tests are worth looking for, should we do them regularly, should they be used as a screening tool or only when there's something specifically of concern to, to have a look at. So yeah, had a great time chatting with Alice and, and good to get her perspective on all of that. Awesome. Let's get stuck into it. Yep, let's do it. Alice McNamara, welcome back to the Long Munch. Hi, team. How are we going? We're good. We're going very well. We um, we're just talking about. We spoke to you almost about a year ago now. Yep, I was on sort of mid Melbourne lockdown in in August 2021. So um, I got to meet you guys properly. Well, before that podcast, but had a good time on the hyponatremia podcast and. Um, yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to be asked back. <laughs> You're up to a lot of episodes now, so it's super impressive what you guys have put together. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, so now we had you back on in 18B and that was a follow-up, I think, from memory from yours, our, um, so yep. uh, yeah. So it seems, though, that whenever I see your social media posts, you're off on an adventure um, doing something crazy, whether it's for work or it's a race that you're doing. How do you manage to fit it all in? Oh, well, I think we've just come off school holidays, so we did actually get away in the last week and a half. But I tell you, this is, this year's been pretty busy with work and family and uh, we've we pretty much limped to term three holidays. I think maybe Al, you'll feel the same. But now I can't believe we're mm -hmm. do, trying to do this on Monday of term four after everyone's just gone back today. So it's been a bit of a stretch. We we had a really lovely time over holidays um, at in the Sapphire Coast at Marimbula Tura Beach, where we've got family holiday house. So um, that was really awesome. But um, yeah, we have had a really busy last term three. I was away with the swimming team in Birmingham and. Mm -hmm. Um, then we all got COVID and we went through that rigmarole and yeah, we sort of just got to the holidays, but yeah, we've had another adventure and now we're buckling down for last term. Yep. Yep. Um, and what's your latest kind of crazy adventure been in terms of running or water sports? <laughs> um, oh, well, we get out quite a bit in the kayaks, Bill and I. So particularly in, in Marimbula, it's been awesome and the whales are migrating south at the moment. So mm -hmm. there's like whales, dolphins. It's like being at SeaWorld every time you go out in the kayak. <laughs> so we like doing that together. Um, we did um, the, the trail run from Tarthra Wharf to Marimbula Wharf, which is called Wharf to Wharf. Um, yep. It's about 30K and it's an awesome um, trek along the coastline. So I went with a good friend of mine, Larry Trees. And um, yeah, chatted all the way and like spotted whales and saw two snakes, which is crazy for um, yeah. September. But anyway, yeah, it's yeah. Australia. <laughs> Have you had any close calls with the um, the whales in the boats? <laughs> uh, dolphins, yeah. yeah. Whales are a bit further out, but they're very yeah. distracting when you see them splashing around. It's good fun. <laughs> 
And um, last time we spoke to you, we briefly mentioned your involvement in competitive stair climbing. So um, what's happening in terms of that um, with the stair climbing? Are you still competing? I I don't know if I... No, I don't know if I'll get back into that in the in the short term. Um, certainly stair climbing was a really good foray sport because it's really hard to retire as an elite athlete from, mm. from rowing particularly. It's very full on and then you go to a different life. So I did a bit of stair climbing, which was filled the, the uh, travel um, void that I had and like the physical outlet, the competitive void. Then we had COVID. And stair climbing inside stairwells is really non-COVID safe sport. So the whole world sort of stopped traveling around and doing stair climbs. They're just sort of starting back up now. Um, but I reckon I'd have trouble getting away every weekend like I used to. <laughs> Life's pretty busy. Um, but yeah, certainly, yeah, they're starting back up. And, and particularly in Australia, all of the, you know, the stadium stomps and, um, you know, the Eureka Tower climb, the Gold Coast climb, they were all started up again. So Stair Climbing Australia is where it's at. If you're interested in doing some vertical races in Australia, they're back on. Yeah, yeah. So you're not sneaking into any car parks and running up the stairs lately? Oh, I've done a bit of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's actually a time-efficient exercise, but I kind of need to do a bit more because I think I'm going to go up to the Four Peaks in Bright over the long weekend and there hasn't been many many hills climbed lately, so I think I'm going to need to do some more stair climbing. <laughs> Only a few weeks to go, though, so I have to cram. That's the cram. style, though, isn't it, Steph? Cramming training? Cramming, that yeah. That's a, that's exactly what I did for our study, yep. <laughs> 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 Which you're saved from, actually. Yeah, he's finished recruiting, so you, you escaped that one. <sighs> yeah, good. Mm. I don't think I would have made five hours, Al. Sorry. Uh, you would have been right. <laughs> no. <laughs> Um, so I guess, yeah, our, our topic, our question today is uh, should athletes get regular bloods and, and what should they, they test for? So, um, you know, blood testing and analysis, I guess, has traditionally been based around diagnostic purposes for, for health conditions, but they're now increasingly being used by many professional and elite athletes um, and their support teams as a screening or monitoring tool. Um, so I guess, first of all, what can a blood test or analysis tell us about an athlete's health um, and performance? So by blood test, um, we certainly use them quite a lot in sports medicine. And I was, we were saying before we jumped on the podcast that quite often there's a shared interest between what a, a medical doctor might find interesting in an athlete's blood tests and, and what a sports dietitian um, and someone trained in nutrition might also find interesting in athlete blood tests because often there are reasons why athletes come to see these practitioners and part of our workup of the athlete is to often work out if there's a deficiency or if there's a medical reason why they're presenting with the symptoms that they are. So, yeah, they, they do perform for us particularly that they they form a really important testing modality that we have. Um, when it comes to tests, one of the things that we spend quite a bit of time when we're going through, um, you know, medical school and university and plus our time in the hospital is being taught like what is a good test and what is not a good test. Um, and, you know, for the listeners, we, we've all been through COVID recently and we know that there are certain differences in accuracy of tests that we do. So if you want a, a really accurate COVID test, you would go to a, a drive-in, you know, PCR test and you would have a formal swab that would go off to a laboratory and be measured for you and they'll do the assay and the PCR would come back very, very 
close to being positive and you can rely on that test. Whereas there are other tests that we can do at home where we do a nasal swab for a rapid antigen test and we, we accept that that comes with a little bit of variation in, in if it's accurate or not. So when we test things, we, we need to know what we're testing for and we need to know how accurate the test is. So, I mean, that's part of the reason why we're talking about this now, right? Because I'm guessing that there's a growing interest for athletes to be able to know their blood contents and their nutritional contents and they want to know where they're at. But I, I, I guess we've got to, as the world becomes more commercialized with the products that are available to athletes, we need to kind of understand what the value of the test is, what the validity is and what the specificity of the testing is as well. Hmm. Um, so the original question I think you're talking about, what can athletes find out about their own health? Well, I sort of put it into a few different categories. I think we'll be interested in this podcast about nutrition um, and the deficiencies specifically that athletes may have that may be contributing to symptoms like fatigue. Um, and the other, I mean, the other tests that are really important for athletes are general medical tests that, in fact, normal people need to be aware of symptoms that may come up of medical conditions that we need to keep an eye on, particularly when you're an athlete. And, um, you know, as we know, athletes, we start when we're in our childhood, teenage life, go through your 20s, 30s, you can be an athlete for a long time and it's important to kind of keep an eye on those symptoms and athletes are usually very good at understanding their bodies. Um, so keeping an eye on the changes, the symptoms that you notice um, and various things that you might be susceptible to based on your family history, um, based on things that you, yeah, like, um, you know, markers for heart disease or diabetes, all of these things. It's a really broad question. Um, so I think it's a great topic that you're covering and particularly I'm interested to hear about the overlap between what the medical doctor is interested in and, and what the dietitian would like to know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I guess looking at nutrition specifically, there's, you know, a, a huge range of biomarkers that people might be tempted to measure um, to look at nutritional adequacy. So various um, vitamins and minerals can be tested there. But do the blood values always tell us whether or not someone is getting enough of a specific nutrient? Um, a short answer is no. So mm. I think that's why it's really important to understand that the test comes, it's got to be uh, interpreted within the setting that it's it's tested for and ordered and also when something says iron on a blood test, it's not actually measuring your available iron stores. So, for example, the main one that athletes are interested in, and you, you guys did a really, really good podcast on iron with Pete Peeling, RHI, have shared many times with athletes <laughs> and colleagues. It's really good. So go back and have a listen. Um, the iron podcast was really good at explaining that iron studies test your iron storage, which is the ferritin, but they also test iron, which is very fluctuant. It, it mainly um, tells you what you might have eaten in the last little while if you had a high iron in the blood. That's how I sort of interpret it. And then it's got um, a measure of transferrin and trans transferrin saturation. So looking at across the iron studies, which are those four markers, you can, have a, you can interpret it to be what's my current level of iron storage and how have I been storing it chronically over the last little while? Are you chronically deficient or are you just recently deficient? However, that test is really influenced by other things in your body at the same time. So, for example, the big one with athletes is 
if you do a training session and then get a blood test, that will completely throw the iron studies out of whack. So it's really important to do the test when you haven't done exercise. Exercise is a stressor, it's, um, it's inflammatory, um, and it will throw up your markers on, on various blood tests. So timing during the day, we can talk about this in detail, but timing during the day for various blood tests is really important. Mm. Um, and as is, you know, having something to eat beforehand. So if it's a fasting blood test, it does need to be a fasting blood test. Yeah. But specifically with iron, ferritin, which is the iron storage marker, and it will tell you um, how much iron you have available to make things like red blood cells, um, that is highly affected by inflammation. So if you're sick, if you're unwell, if you have a cold, um, any kind of you know infection that you're carrying, that iron, that ferritin, it, it's an acute phase reactant. We say so it goes up. And so if you're in, if you're trying to compare you to you um, eight weeks ago, but you're sick this time, then it's going to be higher, even if your ferritin isn't higher. So it's really important to um, kind of have the test, but then interpret it with someone who can kind of look at the whole picture and go, well, that's accurate, but I'm pretty sure that might not be accurate. So let's wait till you're better and we'll do it again. Or in fact, just advise you maybe just to not not test until you're actually in a healthy state and then we'll get a true reflection of your ferritin stores. The other one I was thinking of too is that, you know, a lot of the, particularly the minerals, you know, different minerals sort of exist, I guess, or the majority of it exist in different body compartments and it's not often the blood. So if you want to test, I don't know, calcium, for example, you know, testing a blood value for calcium doesn't tell you anything about mm. whether you're calcium deficient or not because the majority of calcium is in the mineral in your bones, 100%. Uh, your teeth and things like that. So having yeah. a calcium blood test tells you nothing, literally nothing about, you know, whether you've got adequate calcium or not and there's a whole bunch of different ones. And, and I guess similar to the ferritin, even the ones that you do test in the blood, you know, are you testing the, the bit that's bound to the blood cells, for example, or are you testing the bits that are floating around freely? And even that can make a difference in terms of whether, you know, is it reflective of body stores and things? You know, magnesium is another one where you need to test, you know, the red blood cell magnesium as opposed to the free-floating magnesium around in your blood. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the body's really smart, so it keeps your calcium at a really steady level for a reason because yeah. calcium is influence it influences cardiac excitability so if you have heaps of calcium you're at risk of arrhythmias with your heart and so the body's really careful about keeping the calcium in the bones you know most of the time and it pulls out what it needs for blood circulation but also muscle contraction and things like that so athletes that do a lot of exercise do need more calcium because muscles require calcium to contract but um, you're not going to know whether you're getting enough calcium by what's floating around in your blood at any one time because that will be held quite steady. Unless, But, you know, if there is an abnormality in calcium, then we start to look at other body organs like parathyroid hormone and things like that because, you know, we, athletes get sick too. So if there are abnormalities in blood tests, then if it's interpreted with, you know, a medical person, then we can actually direct further investigations, specialist referrals, things like that, and to make sure that we've covered off any early signs of something wrong. Yeah. And um, I guess what, what are uh, the kind of the key nutrients that blood testing might actually be useful for in monitoring in humans? So, you know, possibly that profile in terms of iron that you spoke about, um, other ones like 
vitamin D. So it's interesting when you think about with just just a screening test mm. versus um, assessment f- for ill health, which, um, you know, when you've got someone who's coming to the, the doctor with a symptom, then you're going to test a certain battery of tests. But for an athlete that actually is just asking for some screening blood tests, um, there's a couple of questions to be asked there. So yes, we do tend to sometimes run a panel of blood tests for screening, but it's usually got to be associated with for another reason. So you can you can claim Medicare rebates on blood tests if they're for a specific reason and for a really good reason. We probably should talk about this now. So okay. in, in Australia, Medicare funds all pathology that falls for a particular reason and that's the MBS scheme. Um, and everything has a cost, which I, I think I don't recognise enough and I think all doctors don't, is that when we do a blood test, we write a form to test someone's um, iron, their vitamin D, like you say, maybe some hormone profiles. And and that's all for a reason because an athlete might present with fatigue, example, for a symptom and you're trying to get to the bottom of the fatigue. But I had, had a bit of a squeeze before he came on. And so an iron test is for, for the plain ferritin, it's $18 for a test. And for the iron studies, it's $32.55. Um, and then the next thing you might write on your blood slip is vitamin D, which is $30.05. Um, your thyroid stimulating hormone is $25. So you can see how it adds up and you might write a blood test for an athlete that wants screening bloods, but that's going to cost Medicare $200. So it's actually not ethical to just say, I want my blood screened um, and expect that our healthcare system will find that sustainable. But as an athlete, you know, it is important to, if you have symptoms, to understand why am I continually becoming fatigued? Is it a training load issue? Am I not fueling? Am I iron deficient? So that is important, but it's important to maybe speak to someone about all your symptoms so we can really be judicious about what we order and what are the high yield things that we might need to order so we increase our pre-test probability of it coming up. Um, positive or coming up with something we can work with. There's absolutely no point us finding a whole lot of ne- normal blood tests if we expected that you are healthy and you will have normal blood tests. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess also in relation to the blood testing, are there any other kind of indirect biomarkers that can be measured from blood tests that might provide some insight into nutrition practices of runners, cyclists and triathletes and how they're going with with these. So I guess I'm thinking about um, biomarkers for low energy availability as an example. Yeah, exactly. That's a really common one. So in the cohort that you're talking about with our endurance athletes, if we're interested in trying to work out whether someone's fueling correctly, Red S is is the syndrome that comes after a long period of of low energy availability, so the relative energy deficiency in sport. And now that the Reds is a multi system illness, so uh, we expect that an athlete will present just fatigued, that exercise performance might be impaired, there might be endocrinological sequelae, there might be hematological like blood markers in terms of cells that are, are altered, gastrointestinal symptoms, immunological symptoms. REDS affects all parts of the body. So specifically when we're trying to determine whether someone might be in low energy availability, one of the things that we do is pathology, so blood test. We'll look for your full blood count 
So we'll look to see specifically if someone is anemic with low hemoglobin. We'll look to see whether they have adequate white cell count and quite often with athletes that are energy deficient, I'll see a low white cell count um, and potentially some low neutrophils as well um, and platelets. Platelets are normally maintained. Platelets are the things that stop your blood from bleeding out and they help you clot blood. Um, they have a higher turnover, but the the white blood cells often are low in someone who's had low has had redness for a period of time or low energy availability. Um, we also look at iron, so having low ferritin is a sort of a quasi marker of maybe there's some low nutrients across the board, or there's low absorption because there's some changes to the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, we also look for thyroid function. So when your body is hasn't received enough nutrients to maintain. Um, normal bodily functions, but then you go out and do a two-hour training ride and then a run after that. It's using all of the energy available to do an exercise session, so it's not actually using it to make your thyroid hormone or make your reproductive hormones. So that so we'll see changes in those hormone levels. So thyroid hormones often affected. We check the thyroid stimulating hormone um, as a marker, and if that is altered, then we'll go on and test something like a free T3, which is often reduced in red S. Um, and then we'll also look for some hormonal profiles. It's more likely to be female specific. So female hormones are often altered in relative energy deficiency sport because the pituitary, um, is not actually, so the hypothalamus, sorry, is not actually sending a message to the gonads to produce, um, your female hormones. Um, that's all sort of that axis is shut down. Um, sometimes low testosterone in males, but often that isn't specific because it fluctuates so much during the day. And we'll also look for things like quasi-markers like vitamin D as well, which is really important to you get it from the sun, obviously, but food sources as well. And that can affect fatigue levels and energy levels, which can be another reason why someone's presenting as a fatigue, not just low energy availability. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, like we had Pete Peeling on not all that long ago and we are talking about iron and difficulties for endurance athletes with the iron levels and they can often have potentially have low iron levels and we spoke about hepcidin. Is that a common measure that might be done when you're working with endurance athletes to, to see what's going on there with the iron? It's something I've never tested for. I'm interested in it though. So, I mean, it might be something that we follow through. But, I mean, I, I certainly have never seen it as a test to be accessed through some of the main pathology companies that we use where I work. Mm -hmm. And often that determines some of the tests that we have access to. Mm -hmm. Certainly it would be really interesting to know that, like when your hepcidin levels are elevated and maybe when you might absorb the iron better. Mm -hmm. But also what's the relevance particularly when we have 24 hours in the day and we're not training for 24 hours, there's definitely going to be a time that you can choose to take your iron supplement if you need to. And that's probably the most, or eat your iron rich meals when you need to, which is probably the most relevant point there in that some tests that you might do have a cost value to them, but then they're not really so important to change what you do in practice. It's mostly, so you want to know your ferritin because that's something that really you need to pay attention to and, and change if you're in a bad practice of iron absorption. You might think about the foods that you're intaking and the timing that you're doing it. Mm. But I don't know whether it, we need the hepcidin. We, we just need to time it around passive times in the day where we're not about not just after a training session that we might do it last thing before we go to bed at night or very, very first thing in the morning. 
Yeah. Yep. I guess the other ones um, would probably be more, I guess, medical things that have nutrition implications, you know, testing for celiac disease, for example, if someone's got that kind of fatigue um, or you know, iron deficiency yeah. and going, okay, well, maybe that's the reason for the iron deficiency or something like that. Definitely. We test celiac disease on most athletes who are who are, have chronic low iron or have gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, and then some, you might find some liver function tests that are off, but that the cause for that is, is celiac disease as well. Mm. Um, so you, you can have celiac and, and not have low iron. Like um, things that run in families are important to test for. Um, things that uh, particular, so one of the things that we often do are inflammatory markers, specifically an ESR, um, when there's some sort of musculoskeletal problem like spinal arthritis, like spondylarthropathies, which things like um, ankylosing spondylitis and some rheumatological arthropathies, so inflammatory arthritis that run in families that sometimes present as young people. So if there's pains that we don't understand and we can't necessarily attribute it to an injury, often we'll be doing a panel to do with some inflammatory arthritis and the rheumatologists are, are really good in this field too so if we have a suspicion as sports doctors if we have a suspicion that this is an area that we need to refer on we're quite often picking up you know organic diseases that it might be actually better sitting with an endocrinologist or a rheumatologist so it is worthwhile having a, a doctor within your support team and you know, that, that, that may be your GP because your GP is actually really across the intricacies of being an athlete. But that, I mean, they're also, you're a human as an athlete. So you need to have a doctor that just understands normal human medicine. But sports doctors also have some idea about the interplay of exercise and, and some of these markers. So that does add, add something particular. Yep. Mm. I guess the other two nutrients, I guess, that get relatively frequently tested on blood tests more in the general population would be probably vitamin B12 and folate. Um, you often see those coming up on, on blood panels. Are they ones, as a sports doctor, you would test very often or is there particular groups of athletes that you would do look at those sort of tests for? I, I would do B12 often in female athletes who are fatigued, um, often gastrointestinal symptoms may interact with some fatigue and then I would test for B12. Certainly um, if you have athletes that are trying to be pregnant, folate is a really important one to screen for. Mm. Um, but we have a lot of food sources for folate in Australia, mm. so it's a pretty low pretest probability of that coming up um, as deficient. And, and to be honest, B12 is quite rare as well. We do have a lot of food sources for B12, but, you know, in some populations that have to be particularly restrictive with diet or have really high training volumes, it is hard to maintain some of these levels. But, I mean, it's like everything we say in these podcasts that if you maintain a balanced diet and you try and get a really good, and you guys need to t say this more than I do, but, um, you know, really good sources of a mixed diet, a variety of fruit and vegetables, you will get these micronutrients without us having to scream for them. Certainly, often athletes will have sort of one one-off B12, and if that's fine, they may never have it tested again. Mm -hmm. um, but ferritin is one thing that we kind of keep an eye on based on how difficult it is for some athletes to keep um, in check. Yep. Have you ever come across vegan athletes with sort of B12 deficiency? I, be, I mean, I guess they're the group that are potentially at risk of they B12 are. deficiency. True. Do you do you see that very often? Yeah, they're quite diligent with their sources. Usually yeah, yeah, and and yeah. they're eating more than the general population usually because of their training volume. And so if they've got little bits of 
fortification with B12 in foods here and there, they're probably getting more of that than than non-athletes. Yeah, I think I've seen it written down in, you know, be careful of vegan athletes more than I've actually seen it in practice. Um, however, mm-hmm. if you are, you know, trying to be in, uh, an elite athlete and doing a lot of training volume and, and you're vegan, you really need to tell your practitioners this and make sure that at least you've had some screening bloods. And, and if you're getting symptoms, then we need to sort of check again. But I think you're right, Alan. I think they are sort of getting a really varied diet usually and often it's not a problem. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I guess the other one that I'm thinking of as well um, for athletes and coaches is they often worry about overtraining and the accompanying fatigue or blunted recovery. Can bloods help to test for, for this? Um, and if so, what are the kind of biomarkers that you'd be looking at in relation to that? Um, I, I think bloods do play a role. I think training load and overtraining, there's, there's the load component and then there's what we just call the tired athlete or the fatigued component, which is so multifactorial because there's a training load, there's the nutrition component, there's the life load, there's mental health overlay, there's sleep. There's all these, um, things that play into what is a, an overtrained athlete, uh, what is, the um yeah in the fatigued athlete in that sense when you're thinking about overtraining specifically I think it's really important to have a good relationship with a coach that can monitor a progressive training program and that you have a good dialogue to that you can look into their eyes and say I'm exhausted and they look back and go well you should be because this is a really hard training block get through this week and then we've got we back it off or they say you know well, you shouldn't be because we're in a moderate week and next week's a heavy week. So I'm going to need to modify what you're doing and potentially maybe we'll look at your nutrition or look at your recovery, what else you're doing in your life. So overtraining is a complex thing and usually it needs to be a load assessment. Um, But then there are the other components. If you went to um, a, a practitioner and said, I think I'm overtrained, I think I need some blood tests, that's a sensible idea. But I'll say maybe you need a couple of days quiet rest and then see how you bounce back it's not sort of going to fix your overtraining by having a blood test so it does need to come down to the load adjustment um overtraining is the blood tests are for the tired athlete similar so we would look for nutritional markers we would look for inflammatory markers we would look at your full blood count i would want to know what your hemoglobin and your white cells were doing um your thyroid female hormones or male hormones potentially not always but it's a holistic picture. And the other things that you might use for testing overtraining are measures that you can probably use without a pathology test. So resting heart rate in the morning, really useful. And all the other gadgets that we've talked about before, like um, you know, heart rate variability, um, your body battery on your garment, how accurate that is, but things like that. There's a lot of markers that will tell you you're overtrained before the blood tests need to be tested to show up. But, you know, I, I think as a ex-athlete and a um, sports doc, I reckon it's a conversation between your coach and yourself to just make sure that it's, it is actually the training load assessment rather than um, going straight to am I not feeling well enough. Cool. All right, well, let's get into a bit more around, I guess, you know, someone goes and has a blood test they get the results back, they're looking at them and they're trying to make sense of what it all means. Now, hopefully they're linked in with the doctor who's obviously ordered those tests. It can help them kind of navigate that and interpret that. But I think sometimes there's that temptation to kind of 
get the copy of your report yourself and kind of try and make your own conclusions from it. I, th I think you see that a lot. Um, and so you might go out and get a whole bunch of biomarkers, you know, those nutrition ones that we talked about, some of the vitamins and minerals and things, and they might come back and say they're within the normal range or they're above or below the normal range. Is it as simple as just saying, well, I'm above it, that's either good or bad, or I'm below it, that's good or bad, I'm in the middle, that's fine. It sounds like it's going to be more complicated than that and take a bit more interpretation than just saying, yes, it's in the normal range or no, it's not. Um, yeah, it's a really important point that they're, they're scientific results and, and they're, they're affected by more than just the marker that they pick up. They're affected by, you know, the transport that went from your blood to the, it's got to go in a container to the fridge and then the fridge to the lab. And, you know, if you get a potassium that comes back that's exceptionally high um, and you're walking around fine and you're not feeling unwell and you're not having heart palpitations, chances are that's an error. But mm. you, I'd like you to go and check that that's an error with the doctor just in case. Um, so it's real. that, I mean, temperature changes potassium. So, so if you, if you um, leave the blood before it goes into the vial, it changes the potassium, things like that. So it's, it's really important, these electrolytes. If the doctor requests them, go back and see the doctor to get the interpretation because part of the legality of being a, me a medical professional is one is that if you order a test, you follow it up to make sure that it comes back in a safe range and that's what our registration depends on. Um, but at the same time, you you will learn something from the tests if you go back and speak to a, a trusted practitioner and usually it's looking at your tests right now compared to what the normal range is and remembering the normal range is um, sort of what 95% of the population fall between the value at the bottom and the top of the range that you see on the right-hand side of the page. It's not everybody. Um, you can be normal and be outside that range um, and you can be abnormal and be inside that range for you, you as well. So that's an important point. But um, if you the range isn't everything. Most of the time if you're in the normal range, your doctor's probably going to say we're, we're happy with that but they'll look back at previous tests and the important one for me that I often see is ferritin. So if you have a low ferritin value and you take some iron supplementation or have an iron infusion, we expect that that's going to go up and we expect that we'll be able to track that it's gone up and I'd, then I'd like to see that it stays up. But if it's dropping fast but you're still in the normal range, it's still a net loss of ferritin. So we still have to adjust our practices even though it's still technically in that range that's on the right-hand side. So, so you might be able to see that looking at your own blood tests, but it, it, you do learn something speaking, talking it through with a, with a dietitian or with your doctor, preferably both. Um, and I think it is always worthwhile following up your test just to check that your interpretation of the test is correct. Um, and when it comes to electrolytes and some of these things are kind of vital to human function, I do think it's important that you've had some advice from someone that's, that's spent a long time studying these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that probably comes nicely to my next question, which I guess also comes back to what you're talking about, you know, the costs with Medicare and the rebates around some of this stuff. So, you know, in, in certainly in Australia and probably in most other countries as well, I'd imagine you can't just turn up to a pathology centre and say, I want my iron tested or my vitamin D or whatever as an athlete. Um, you know, you need a, a doctor's uh, request for that. And I think sometimes you see athletes or coaches express kind of frustration at this. You know, they find it frustrating because they'd like to just go and get bloods whenever they'd like to, you know, do some sort of screening or monitoring or whatever without having to go and visit their GP or a sports doctor first. 
Now, obviously, there's the the cost factor that we talked about before with Medicare that you don't just want people going out and getting an iron test every second week because um, the cost is just, you know, bankrupt the government kind of thing and taxpayers going to have to pay out for that. But I guess there's also the the interpretation part of that. And you're probably uniquely placed to answer this because you've both been on both sides of the fence, one as an athlete prior to becoming a doctor and now as a doctor as well. Do you feel that that, uh, I guess, requirement to go to a doctor and then get the pathology request before you can actually access a blood test, you know, cost aside, is an important safeguard there as well? Or do you feel that it's kind of left over from a sort of historical way that the healthcare system's sort of functioned? Yeah, it's a super good question and, and also, yeah, quite valid. I think I can see how um, it could easily be seen as red tape to, to have to go through a, a medical practitioner to have a blood test slip, definitely. Um, I, I have to say, I mean, the the access that medical practitioners have to request blood tests comes through a provider number and you get your provider number once you've done your medical degree and you've learned about how to interpret blood tests plus how they're relevant to not just sports but other medical conditions. Um, so that provider number actually, it is, it is important and, and it comes with some element of being able to interpret it better than someone who, who hasn't done all the years to learn all the things to get through. And, and that's why, you know, you go to see a, a, a dietitian and that's why you go to a physiologist to really hone your training program. And that's why, you know, I, I'm not pretending to be any expert on the liver. I would send someone to a gastroenterologist to really understand what the intricacies of this um, transaminase rise is. Like oh, there are specific things that people do a lot of learning about to become experts in that area. Um, and so, so I guess if you're interpreting your doctor as being unfortunately red tape to get your blood test you probably haven't found the right click with the doctor um i would say that it when if you're a busy athlete that's trying to balance training work kids all that stuff i would group your concerns into a bunch of things and so you say well you know i i actually need prescription for this condition that i have or this you know medication that i take i'd like to talk to the doctor about some of these symptoms whether that be fatigue or whether that be um, you know, aches and pains in various parts of my body. I'm going to speak to the doctor about these conditions and group it all together, make an appointment, have a list, write it down and go and talk to them about the things that you do, the sports that you do, your training load and the concerns that you have and your, your conditions and your symptoms. And then you'll actually get someone who looks at you and requests the right tests. And then when you come back to check the results, you'll get some good feedback on the results. And And if your doctor is sort of just emailing the results and not um, speaking to you about them, I'd suggest that there's probably someone else who could do that better. But yeah, most GPs in Australia are really well trained and if you give them information about you, they will give you some feedback about you. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily red tape. I think it is important safeguard both from an econ economical and a safety point of view and that we don't have abnormal results sitting around in people's email inboxes not being checked. I mean, Athletes are humans, so things do change over your athletic career and um, athletes get diagnosed with various medical conditions, blood cancers, all sorts of problems that probably need to be seen by a doctor rather than just get my test, my iron's fine and you haven't looked at the other markers. Mm. So I think it is actually really important to follow up with mm. your doctor. Mm. And, yeah, it comes back to that interpretation of, okay, well, your iron's high or low or whatever it is, but why is it high or low or whatever it is because there could be all sorts of different reasons as exactly. you said some quite benign and some quite sinister yeah mm. 
and I guess that comes back to, you know, what are the potential problems with just letting anyone go and get bloods whenever they wanted to? And it would probably be that, you know, missing out on potentially important medical conditions, possibly in terms of things that are really going to affect someone's health seriously, or just not getting the full set of bloods that will help them kind of figure out what's going on. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree there. And, and potentially in the next you know, couple of decades, we're going to have a lot more private providers that might offer services like, you know, if you are happy to pay this private fee, then you can have this gamut of tests from us. Um, and, and certainly if it's interpreted by someone who understands what the blood tests mean, well, maybe, you know, if it's not costing the taxpayer and, and the athlete or, or the person is prepared to pay for some extra information that, you know, might not be necessary because they may come back like a normal blood test, then um, then that's fine. Um, but we have, we're really lucky in Australia that we have a really good um, healthcare system. And I'm, I'm sure it's replicated in some countries, but not all, in that if you present to a, a medical doctor with symptoms and a, a condition, even if it is fatigue related because of your sport, they will investigate it to see if there's a nutrition or an, or an underlying medical cause. And we're really lucky that that happens. My suggestion would just be to be a bit judicious about it. You know, if you have a good reason that you're tired, like you've really upped your training volume, you've had less sleep, you've got deadlines with your PhD, all that stuff, that might be why you're tired. So <laughs> let's modify some lifestyle factors and then consider what you're eating and nutritional markers as well, but usually multifactorial. Okay, and I guess, I mean, there's probably a common held belief that you know, elite and professional athletes get regular bloods, whether it's every year, every six months, something like that, as sort of sort of a screening and prevention tool. Obviously, you've you've been an elite athlete yourself, but you also work at the Victorian Institute of Sport now as well. Is that the case? Is that commonly done, or is that only done in specific situations where there's a perceived need or sort of a, a high risk scenario, so to speak? I think it's a varied practice. Um, strictly speaking, we shouldn't really just be doing screening tests for no specific reason. As athletes increase their years of training and um, jump into more serious training programs, it's actually likely that some of their markers are going to change just because their bodies adapt to keep up with the training load. And and so uh, particularly with some of the elite athletes, I mean, for things like ferritin, we have a really high hit rate. If you do a, an iron studies on a on an elite athlete particularly female athletes a lot of them are low uh, and so you know I think it's really reasonable to screen for things like ferritin because most of them are tired most of the time and you do find fer low ferritin a lot of the time but it's at varying levels and that does change our practice and changes our dietitian's advice and changes our medical management of low ferritin so that's a screening but it's also with a high pretest probability like I said um, I don't think it's common that athletes have a full blood panel on a regular basis that would be really uncommon um with the vis you know the athletes we've got a team of four wonderful doctors and um i'm really lucky to work alongside them we tend to look at our athletes when they come on to scholarship they all have a medical screening which is a question an answer session where we just talk about family history past medical history you do cardiac screening you look at um, previous injuries and one of the things we consider is whether we should do bloods for this athlete coming on to scholarship for the first time not every athlete scores a blood test so if their their sport is not particularly 
as they arduous or if we don't think that they would be at risk of nutritional deficiency and they have no other medical problems, there is a high likelihood that the blood tests would all be normal and unless they have a particular symptom that we're worried about and we want to investigate, we may not send them for a blood test. So not all elite athletes get blood tests all the time, but certainly we have a low threshold to order blood tests for an athlete who presents with symptoms. But some of the elite professional female clubs for, in particular, I know, would do an iron test before the start of each season just because you've got, you're going to pick up a lot of low ferritins. But I, th- I think in terms of regular like three-monthly tests, not every athlete will need that. Mm, yeah. Okay. And so I guess if you're, you know, some of our listeners obviously can do pretty large training volumes, you know, 10, mm. 15, 20 hours plus a week in some cases for the some of the long-course triathletes, they would probably fall into a similar category in terms of, you know, some of them would be at that higher risk of iron deficiency and maybe it is worth getting done annually, but probably that's a discussion to have with their doctor beforehand. Yeah, and and certainly that's a really important point and maybe the age group triathletes and the ones that are juggling high training loads and families and, and busy lifestyles, they're the ones that don't make the time to go and see the doctor because they don't have the time. Mm. Uh, and so I, I would just suggest find a doctor that you get along with and, and do make a chance to meet up with them, particularly if you can present with, with an argument that I've been really tired lately. I mean, that's a really good, time to screen your bloods if you're feeling wonderful and you've just come off a two-month holiday randomly I don't know who's two-month holiday but you know you've done your Kona Ironman and then you've had your break and you've you've probably replenished all your stores you're probably going to have your best bloods of the year Mm. but I I would suggest maybe pick a time that you're tired and find find out where those levels are when you're tired and then you will um, have a management plan off the back of that in terms of yeah your ferritin's fine or we need to sort of check you on a, a three or six monthly basis. Mm. I think that's the important point of that that timing in your season as well. I mean, the other classic one would be like getting your vitamin D tested well, here in Australia in April when you just mm. come off a summer of training and spending, you know, multiple hours most days of the week in the sun. It's very unlikely unless you have some bizarre medical condition that you're going to be low in a vitamin D. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. And most Melburnians are low in vitamin D at the end of winter. Yes. So you can almost expect that. Yeah. <laughs> So supplementation is probably one of the more useful things to yep. do in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so if an athlete does get their bloods checked and they're found to have a deficiency in, say, a particular vitamin or mineral, you know, ferritin we talked about, might be vitamin D, could be B12, something like that, is there a general rule of thumb in terms of when they should get tested again, assuming that they then, you know, go on to sort of supplementation or something, or is it going to be different with each individual? It's different with each individual. Um, the AIS has some really good guidelines on their website about um, nutrient testing and some of the protocols in terms of follow-up. But, I mean, that's probably the role for the practitioner that you're working with. But usually for me it will depend on what the value is and what my treatment is with a particular athlete. So oral iron supplementation, I might choose a certain follow-up date and iron infusions, I might expect that it's going to increment and increase and then I would do a check to make sure that it's staying up, but I might not check that the oral supplementation has actually been taken, kind of something like that. So it depends on the athlete and it depends on what the um, what what the treatment is for something like iron. Vitamin D, like you say, Alan, it's got a real ability to change throughout the year depending on the weather as well. So, you know, if we had low iron in September, I mean low vitamin D in September, 
if we did some supplementation and then you hit summer, I might not actually see the need to recheck that until you were fatigued the next year in winter or something like, you know, we may not need to because it's got a $30 price tag and we might just understand that you've been in the sun now training over summer. So I'm I'm sure that it won't be low. Yep. Yep. And I guess, you know, a lot of athletes won't have a regular sports doctor necessarily. And so they instead they're going to their GP to get that testing. And, you know, you do hear, and Steph, you probably get this a lot as well, you know, athletes coming and going, oh, well, my GP tested this stuff, but they don't really know much about exercise. And so they don't really know how to interpret these bloods, that kind of thing, or, or they're just not sure that their GP really knows what's going on for athletes specifically. Any tips or suggestions on how to handle this, I guess, conversation with the GP or whether you, you know, just recommend that they get involved with a sports doc? sports doctor um yeah how do you suggest people navigate that yeah well i'm going to always advocate for sports physicians i think we're really great profession and bunch of people with good training um however with the general practitioners there are quite a lot who have an interest in sport so you 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 might be attending a gp practice that you're seeing one gp and and they're very good at one particular thing but there might be someone else who's got more of a sports interest and so you might just think about whether you've got the best fit in terms of your doctor. I mean, we're really lucky in Australia. There's a lot of good doctors. Just got to make sure that you match up with the correct one. It's just important to have like a couple of people in your team that you might talk to as well. So, you know, I'm also not going to pretend that I'm as knowledgeable as you guys on micronutrients and which specific foods I'm going to advise my athlete to get particular nutrients. I'm definitely going to be asking a specialist sports dietitian or if I think that we really need some more support, I'm going to sort of ask around and work out who the best person I might refer them to is. So I, I think one person, expecting one person knowing all the answers is probably also not going to be always the best option. But yeah, I think we've got enough GPs who do understand sport and exercise, but also there's some wonderful sports docs around the place. And so particularly in Australia, you've got a lot of sports registrars who don't need a GP referral to go and see. So you can go and have a look at your local sports medicine clinics and see one of those. But also sports physicians are also very accessible. We've got quite a lot in Australia. Yeah. Okay. And just to finish up, I guess if someone is going to have a blood test, are there some sort of, I guess, considerations in how you prepare? I mean, you mentioned obviously heavy exercise possibly before a test is not a good idea because it can disturb some of the different biomarkers and give you results that don't reflect normality, I suppose, for you day to day when you're not exercising. Um, any other things in terms of, you know, like time of the day, obviously fasting, you know, usually tests will indicate if you have to be fasted or not. But even things like hydration, whether you deliberately become very hydrated or if you've come off a hard session and you're a bit dehydrated, whether you need to really, you know, purposefully rehydrate if you've got a test happening the next day. Are there any particular things that we need to consider in terms of how we prepare for a test, I guess, to get the most value from it? Yeah, good question. And it's actually a tricky one because sometimes you might ask an athlete to get their bloods tested and ask them to get it done on a quiet morning off and they can't find one. Mm. (laughs) Uh, But yes, the conditions that you do the testing do affect the results. Your hydration status affects the results, whether you've done exercise beforehand and, and often whether you've eaten. Some blood tests aren't affected by fasting beforehand and so hopefully you'll be told when to fast and when it doesn't matter if you fast. But yeah, I always think as a rule of thumb, morning blood tests are more consistent 
some blood tests need to be done in the morning. So if you're asked to do a cortisol, usually it's a morning cortisol, for example, because cortisol ha- has a specific release pattern and it's very different across the day. Uh, so yeah, I, w- I would suggest ask when you need to get your blood test done when you're given the form. Um, and usually it's going to be a morning test with a 24-hour period beforehand where you're sort of doing low-intensity training or, or resting. But for athletes, usually that's just don't do any training in the morning before the test and do something light the night before. Try not to dehydrate yourself exceptionally. Drink a bit, but, you know, don't overhydrate. Yeah, it, it's just be be sensible. Don't turn up to the blood test in a, in a state that you wouldn't think is being sort of your baseline. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that overhydration is one that often gets overlooked by people as well. They, they sort of think, oh, you know, particularly if you're someone that, you know, historically they find it hard to find your veins or something to get blood from. People go, oh, I need to drink lots of water so it's easier to get the blood out. But if you drink too much, you're actually essentially diluting everything in there and possibly lowering the values. Yes, spot on. Well, thank you for that. I'm going to hand over to Steph now and she's going to finish us off with the bonus round. Awesome. So what's the best thing about being a sports physician? Oh, it's a great job. I mean, it's it's definitely a, a hard job. I think we're very busy and you, t- you typically find yourself on call most of the time because you're sort of managing teams and you're sort of the person that people ring up for various bits and pieces, lots of text messages from athletes and coaches. And so it's busy, but it's wonderful like to be able to practice medicine, but with a really cool population um, that are all motivated that, you know, want to get better and, and um, achieve like a, a goal that's outside of just getting better from a, a medical condition is really exciting and we're helping them work towards something um, that they've really worked towards. So I, yeah, I really enjoy working with athletes and I find it really rewarding. And I find it um, also because I was an athlete, so I had great doctors that worked with me. So I feel like um, they were very influential in, you know, helping me, you know, understand that they they just sort of were my advocate sometimes when life was tough as an athlete and you needed someone to talk to. I found it quite useful having a good doc. So um, if I can be that for someone else, that's a real privilege. But I guess you guys have the same experiences working with the athletes that you do as well. So most listeners won't have a doctor um, that travels with them as a team. So what does that involve when you're actually travelling in terms of Commonwealth Games with the swim team? Yeah, those teams are really lucky, aren't they? They have a whole entourage. Yeah, so... um, Doctors that travel with a team do a few different things. So the the team's going over to usually do a training block and then compete uh, or they might do various competitions and train in between. So you've got a few elements. You've got the fact that there's there's flying involved, there's time zone changes involved, you're away from your home medical services and then there's competition requirements that people might have. And, and then there's anti-doping testing that usually is happening after the test, after the competition as well. Um, so at the moment, a lot of the sports doctors are doing sort of pre-travel preparation in terms of COVID protocols, advising on various things that the, the team needs to do before they travel. The doctor packs a medical kit that involve, basically you take like a, a little pharmacy away overseas with you because we like to source our medications that we find reliable. So we take over 
all of the basic analgesic medications, antibiotics, you know, anti-vomiting medications, emergency drugs, those kind of things, we take them over with us so that we know what we're using when we have medical problems that come up overseas. Um, we work really closely with the physio team. So usually there's a couple of physios on these teams that will see athletes for musculoskeletal problems. And then if they need anti-inflammatories or, you know, even particular timed injections for things, obviously not too close to competition, but there's an involvement of the doctor on that side and there's um, problems with sleep that come up all the time um, and then advice around medications and supplements before drug testing, things like that. They're the main things, I think, but there's always really quirky um, things that happen when you're overseas and management of disasters or injuries or things like that that you don't expect and doing it on the fly where you don't have your local um, emergency department or x-ray machines is always a challenge and trying to translate in different languages is also a challenge it's good fun <laughs> and we mentioned previously on the podcast your recent engagement with the lovely bill um <laughs> the lovely he's never been described as lovely you told me he listened so i've got to be really lovely um <laughs> so important question when is the wedding and are we going to see you on extreme weddings which if you don't watch that that's where people <laughs> do crazy things like jump out of a plane or they like get married in the water um what's <laughs> what's happening oh we'll get married next year in april um and nothing extreme, just in a special place where we have recently been holidaying actually in south coast of New South Wales, which will be beautiful. Most extreme thing will probably be we have the dog in the ceremony. Trigger will have a, I think we'll get him a top hat or something. He'll look very dapper. Um, no, it'll be lovely actually, really special time to get all the families and friends together. And yeah, we'll have lots of kids at the wedding because now we're old, there's lots of, um, you know, couples with kids. It's going to be mayhem. So I'll have to hopefully make a good week of it with a few different runs and kayaks and adventure park visiting for the kids. It'll be good, really good. No extreme jumping out of planes. <laughs> no kayaks in the actual wedding itself by the sound of it. Oh, Bill wanted to come in on a kayak yeah. in a wetsuit and then take the wetsuit off James Bond style and have a suit on underneath. Need a dry suit for that. No, well, he, he can, but it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon that would be cool. Um, one place you'd love to run, but you've uh, you haven't had the chance to yet. I reckon I've been to the Dolomites, but only to Pramana, kind of in the south. I'd really like to go to Cortina, where Lavarado Ultra Trail is on, and I think the Winter Olympics are there in twenty twenty six. So that would be a very cool trip but if you didn't go to the olympics you could go anytime and just have a beautiful run in the dolomites with the it's the scene that's got have you seen it steph it's like the tray chime i think it's the three spikes yep. just out of cortina yeah it's beautiful italy good pizza <laughs> good wine yeah starts in the evening from my memory it um is that right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. or the long one i don't know yeah. if i do the long one yeah yep yeah, it's 11 p.m. start and then they at sunrise they come up via that beautiful scenery. Yeah, yeah. Um, best book that you've read in the last 12 months, if you have, because we know you're incredibly busy and why? I wish I was 
I had got a good answer to this one. So the book that's sitting next to my bed at the moment is the um, track notes from the AAWT, the Australian Alpine Walking <laughs> Track, because I open it and I'm like, oh, that's a cool section. Maybe one day we'll go there. It's just like, you know, escapism. Um, yeah. But that's not probably not a book that I've read. But I've like I'm at the moment I'm listening to on Audible, there's a book by Neela Janakira Manan, who's a plastic surgeon in Melbourne, and she's yeah. written this book called The Registrar, which is really horrifying actually. It's a sort of similar one to Emotional Female, which was, it was about training, medical training in Australia in the hospitals, um, which is just so accurate. It's, it's scary. And it, it's about the hierarchy and the teaching by you know, almost teasing and bullying and belittling kind of to try and make uh, young doctors learn their craft and hopefully it's changing but some of the things in the book are are just too close to home and and the hours that people are expected to work and the overtime they're not paid for. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I think it's a bit of an indictment on our medical system but I'm really glad that I'm done hard hospital years but I'm now living the dream outside of the hospital doing medicine. So that's good. (laughs) And favourite sporting moment in 2022 so far? Ooh, I actually should have had a good think about this one. Well, the Opals just won bronze in the World Cup, like basically yesterday, so that was pretty cool. Um, I also, yeah, I just loved being with the swimming team at Com Games because they're good in the Com Games. Australian wins quite a bit. And mm. like the finals where we all sort of stood in the grandstand and as I stand up on the on the blocks, it's all really quiet and the whole swimming team goes, Coo-ay! and it's the, the last minute and it echoes and then they go bang and they swim. I found that a really cool vibe to be part of that group. I saw Aaron Titmus break the 400 freestyle world record at the trials in April as well, which was pretty incredible. Mm. So there's been a really few really good swimming moments this year that I've sort of come to appreciate. Did you get a front row seat for, I can't remember the name of that coach, has all those antics when his athletes win. Team Boxall. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And and he's not putting it on either. That is him. Through. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's passion, definite passion, and he's he's very supportive of his athletes, that's for sure. Yep. <laughs> uh, we are going to let you go. Thank you very much for joining us on the show, show again. You answered those questions really well and I guess the some of the key points there for our listeners would be that I think it's really worthwhile finding a good GP that perhaps does have an interest in sport and or a sports physician if that's relevant for them and that it's more than just seeing if your numbers are in you know these little brackets or in the normal range there's a lot more to it um, and you guys have done an incredible amount of, of study and have a wealth of knowledge and so perhaps if you don't feel like you're being listened to um, or you have a good rapport then it might just be finding a, another sort of medical practitioner. Yeah yeah I think spot on good summary. Thanks for having me it's a pleasure to be back on your amazing podcast. I'll continue to share it with lots of people, lots of athletes. I keep forwarding them episodes. So it's a privilege to be back on. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. 
Awesome. Thank you very much, Alice. Wealth of information as always. And now I am going to hand it over to Al to um, summarize the key points. Yep. So our question was, should I get regular bloods and what should I test for? And we talked about, I guess, firstly, that you know, blood testing can be a useful tool from a health point of view. And obviously that has implications from a nutrition perspective as well. One thing we do need to be aware of, though, is it's not as simple as saying, I want to know what you know, if I'm calcium deficient, I'll go do a calcium test or I want to know um, if I'm deficient in magnesium, I'll go do a magnesium test because some of these tests don't actually reflect the amount of that nutrient in your body because it's not just floating freely around in the blood that you can sample and get a good estimate of. You know, iron is another great example where your iron status isn't based on actually the amount of iron in your blood. It's based on the amount of ferritin, which is the protein that binds iron to store it and, and carry it around in the blood as well so yeah there's a whole bunch of nuances in that and so it's really important that um, you have a, a doctor or a clinician who really knows what they're talking about in terms of ordering those blood tests and in most countries that they're sort of a gatekeeper you can't get the test or at least get it funded uh, unless you get a request from a doctor in the first place so that's kind of a, a given in a lot of countries and certainly here in Australia um, from a nutrition perspective, obviously there's different biomarkers that may be a useful indicator of nutrition status and some of them are direct measures, things like vitamin B12 or vitamin D. Um, obviously some of them are indirect, so things like ferritin we mentioned before um, and things like you know, thyroid markers that might have implications from a nutrition point of view or things like reproductive hormones, as Alice said, can give some indication of energy availability but there are obviously a whole lot of other medical things that could result in those biomarkers being you know, quote-unquote abnormal. And so we can't sort of be too simplistic in our interpretation of that. And that's where the role of an experienced clinician, whether that's a GP who really understands exercise and athletes or a sports physician, sports doctor, who really has that good understanding of exercise and medicine uh, is required to really interpret those values properly and in a way that's going to give you value for that test. There's no point going out and getting that blood test and then getting you know a lack of useful mm. information out of that that then doesn't really help you work out, is there an issue, do I need to change anything, whatever it is. Uh, so that's going to obviously be really important. Uh, and so we, we mentioned this in the interview with Alice that you know a lot of athletes uh, and coaches kind of think, oh, if I could just go and get the bloods done myself, I could get regularly screened and you know bypass the GP and not have to worry about all of that stuff. But the reality is that, you know, this is complex stuff and there is a lot of interpretation involved and it's not that simplistic just to read a test and then the reference range and go, yes, I'm in the reference range or I'm above or I'm below. That's probably not enough, not adequate, and it doesn't give you good information or actionable information. So that's where really having that input of a GP or a sports physician to not only order the appropriate tests, but to be able to interpret those in your specific context and then give you actionable feedback is going to be really important as well. Um, we talked a bit about whether you know athletes should get regular blood tests more as a screening rather than a, a specific sort of information gathering for a particular concern. Uh, and I guess as Alice said, you know, we could go out and do blood tests regularly, but if we're not expecting to find anything out of the ordinary, then most likely we're not going to find anything out of the ordinary. And when you consider that, you know, test involves going, putting a needle into your arm, taking out some blood, and then going to a pathology lab, there's a cost associated with all of that. 
which obviously, you know, in certain circumstances, the government puts the bill for here in Australia and some other countries, uh, but not in all circumstances. So you can't just go and, you know, get your iron checked every second week because you feel like it's a good idea. Um, there's limitations around the funding for that. And so, and those limitations are put in with good reason. You know, we don't want to throw away taxpayers' dollars just because it'd be nice to know. Uh, it's more there, you know, to protect the health of, of the population. So there's an important aspect to that as well. So I guess if you are concerned that there's an issue, then obviously blood testing is going to have a role. Um, there is some athletes that might be considered high risk that certain markers might get screened, say annually, for example, and that might be things like iron in you know female athletes or endurance athletes, people with a history of low iron or vegetarian, vegan diets, that kind of thing, where we go, yeah, they probably are going to be at risk of iron deficiency. That does need to be checked. And then you know once it's actioned, might be involving iron supplementation, for example, we're going to go and back and check that again at a reasonable period afterwards to see what effect that intervention has had. And again, you can't just say it's going to be six weeks for everyone. It's going to be different for different people, depending on what advice you've taken. Have you just simply eaten more red meat? Have you taken tablets? Have you had an infusion? That will change you know, how frequently or, or you know, that time period until you expect to see a change and therefore when you should bother getting tested again as well. If you do have, uh, say, a, a local doctor, a GP who doesn't really understand exercise so well and um, doesn't understand how to interpret those blood tests, then maybe there is another GP in your clinic that does understand exercise better, or you can go and find a sports physician, someone like that, who has particular expertise in that area. And then the final thing is, you know, if you are having a blood test, there are some considerations around that. Firstly, you should always try and have that test at least probably 24 hours after any strenuous exercise because the exercise itself can change the values you get on that blood test. Or it could be, for example, that you're a little bit dehydrated from you know, doing a long workout or a really hot condition, something like that. And you know, dehydration and overhydration will also affect the test. So make sure you're well hydrated, but not excessively so to make sure that it's not either concentrating or diluting all the bits and pieces in the blood that you're then measuring that concentration of. Mm. Well done. Well summarised. So next episode, Al, we're up to 48B. Yes. So 48B is a follow-on from this one. So should I get regular bloods and what should I test for? And we're going to be joined by our guest ultra runner these days, Blake Hose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Can't wait for, for that one to have him on the show and find out what he's been up to. And then just a reminder that if you do have a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Lunch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And remember also that there's more than 45 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome but you might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. If you would like to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition question for the training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, then you might like to let them know. Otherwise, we will love and leave you until next week. Will do. See you, everyone.